1: Hello, and welcome to the other half, episode 1.1 The First First Ladies of Rome. In my previous show, The Queens of England podcast, I told the stories of each the Queen's Consort of England, from the Norman Conquest in 1066 to the Act of Union with Scotland in 1707. It was a ton of fun to do, and I learned a lot. But now it's time to do something completely new. Kinda. This is a new podcast project. It has new artwork, new music and new topics, but it is still me. I will still be approaching my work on this show with the same rigour as I ever have. The show will evolve, but so did the Queens of England. That's just how it works if you want to keep it fresh. Before I get going though with today's episode, I want to deal with some thank yous, some news and some admin. First of all, I would like to thank Sally, my newest Patreon subscriber, who also wrote me a very nice email that boosted my ego to a slightly unhealthy level. You are so very welcome here, Sally, and I am very grateful for your support, along with all my other patrons. Now, it has been gnawing away at me for some time that I haven't been doing an awful lot to reward my patrons aside from thanking you every week. I've always been committed to making sure that all aspects of the podcast are available for free, forever but that doesn't mean that I can't offer you something a little extra on the side. So, I'm going to be uploading various bits of extra content to Patreon for all of you to enjoy. This will include reviews of books, TV shows, films, etc. related to the podcast. There'll be giveaways and the opportunity maybe even to vote on new series of the show when it comes to that. I already have a few that I have penciled in for this year, but I will sometimes put it out for a vote. So, if that all sounds good to you then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast and sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Next, as I mentioned in the last show, I have some brand new social media accounts for you to follow if you want to keep up with the show. These are The Other Half on Facebook and at Other half Pod on Twitter. There is also the website theotherhalfpodcast.co.uk where you can find all the episodes. Okay, I think that is sufficient intro. Let's get going. think we'll be finding out over the course of this podcast, the position of women, especially powerful women in the West, didn't change a whole lot over the last couple of millennia or so of history. A lot has changed over the last couple of centuries, but as all of us have seen in recent headlines, a lot hasn't as well. In the early modern, medieval and ancient worlds, there are isolated incidents of women seizing power, making a difference thanks to some extraordinary talent or simply luck thanks to their genes and circumstances. But mostly women who have achieved power were only in a position to do so because of who their father was or who their husband was. This is true of the Queens of England and it is also true of the consorts of the Roman Empire. In the next episode, I will be giving you the broad historical setting and setting up the first biographical episode on the first Roman empress, or Augusta, a fascinating woman called Livia Drusilla. For the rest of today's episode, I'm going to talk about what it meant to be a Roman empress, what it meant to be a Roman noblewoman, and how they have been perceived over the last two millennia. Any discussion about the modern perceptions of Roman noblewomen, especially empresses, must start with I, Claudius. If you haven't seen it, then you really, really should. This was a book written in the early 30s by Robert Graves that in the 1970s was turned into a BBC television show. It tells the story of the birth of the Roman Empire, from the murder of Julius Caesar in 44 BCE to the death of Emperor Claudius in 54 CE. The show was an absolutely huge success, both here in the UK, where it got great ratings, and in the US, where it was broadcast on PBS and nominated for several Emmys. It helped launch the careers of actors who had become stars, such as Derek Jacoby, who played the title role of Claudius, Patrick Stewart, who played the Praetorian Prefect Sejanus, and John Hurt, who played the sadistic Caligula. It also had Brian Blessed, John Rhys-Davis, Sean Phillips... The list goes on. It was an amazing cast. Audiences were transfixed by the story. But one character really stood out from the crowd in the first episodes of the series. The leading lady. The Empress of Rome. The arch-manipulator, murderer and Machiavellian. Livia. Every unanswered question, every suspicion of wrongdoing, Livia did it. Any time someone died mysteriously, Livia poisoned them. Any time someone's liberty is violated, Livia called for it. Anytime anyone seems to switch sides and joins the dark side, Livia was the one who persuaded them. And it wasn't just Livia. The book, but to a greater extent the show, portrays other empresses as being arch-villainesses. In particular, there was Messalina, a beautiful, sex-crazed liar who manipulates and humiliates her elderly, kindly husband, Claudius and Agrippina, the original black widow and mama bear, who murders her husband in order that her son could become emperor. Now, Graves and the producers of the show didn't create these characters, these murderous manipulators, out of nothing. No, much like Shakespeare's evil depiction of Richard III, it comes from a source that has a particular agenda and few qualms about tailoring history to fit it. For the immortal bard, it was Hollinshed's chronicle. For Graves, it was Tacitus. As we shall see, Tacitus is one of our most important sources for this period, but he has a massive bee in his bonnet when it comes to women. Some historians have accused Tacitus of having a pathological hatred or fear of women, but others have defended him as merely someone who reflected the best wisdom of his time, no better or worse than any Roman man. Some have even defended him as having an appropriate attitude towards female power, but I reckon we can safely push that to one side. There is no doubt in my mind that he was someone who did not so much hate women as fear them. He saw the idea of women being in power as inherently wrong. And so if they were there, it must be because they lied, tricked and murdered their way there. And they must be lying, tricking and murdering to stay there. I will talk more about Tacitus and our other sources when we start our dive into each Empress's life... But it is important to recognise that surviving contemporary histories from the very start are extremely dodgy when it comes to our empresses. They are almost all we know, other than statues, coins and some archaeological research. But they contain big gaps and cannot be trusted. Though I guess that is true of any source, really. In fact, I would argue that one of the joys of an obviously biased source is that at least you know where they stand. One of Roman writers' absolute favourite tropes was the evil matriarch. In our period, we have so many women whose overarching goal in life is projected as being not so much their own aggrandisement, nor that of their husband. It is of their sons, men and boys who are born to a previous marriage. These women also often fall into the trope of the evil stepmother, as they are often accused of murdering the sons of their husband, whose claim to power challenged that of their own sons. It happens all the time in the sources. Indeed, it happens so much that you can't help wondering if this is really what happened, or just what they thought must be happening due to their own worldviews. The pervasion of this attitude in the sources means that it has infected other shows as well that cover this period. Take, for example, the HBO series Rome, which takes place mostly a little before what we'll be talking about, but has many characters who will be appearing in our story. One of the principal characters in this show is Attia, the niece of Julius Caesar and mother of Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus. History barely mentions her, but in the show she is cast in the Cersei Lannister mould, a scheming, amoral hussy who uses her body to carry influence and win power for her son. Though she certainly has certain pretensions of power for herself as well. And this trope lives on in our popular culture because people have been reading Tacitus ever since his works were first published. There are references to his works in other ancient sources, and then throughout the Middle Ages and into the modern world, and the same is true of many of his contemporaries. Now, we can't credit entirely these Roman writers with the spreading of this trope. It existed, for example, in ancient Greek plays as well, and was prevalent also in ancient China. But this idea, that these days seem to mostly come from movies of fairy tales such as Cinderella, was nurtured and spread by Roman writers. Part of the problem here is not just the lack of objective sources, but also the lack of variety. Virtually no writing exists by any woman, let alone an empress, from the entire history of ancient Rome. Now, this probably won't be a massive surprise to you, as little writing from women exists at all until you get to recent centuries, but it does bear repeating for this simple reason. It means that we can only see these women through male eyes, and I don't think I'm going too far to call them hostile eyes for the most part. These male writers were often not contemporaries and were generally either not interested in them at all or saw them as antagonists in their great man narratives. This leads to them being typecast in nice, easy-to-understand groups and not developed as characters in the same way that the male heroes are. Where Christian writers of the Middle Ages like to either characterise their female characters as either as good and pure as the Virgin Mary or as evil and sinful as Eve... Ancient Roman writers tended to see them either in the prism of the tropes that I have previously discussed – scheming, manipulative, oversexed, etc. – or, on the other hand, as embodying that trait that Romans loved so much – virtue. This was embodied best by Cornelia Africana, the great daughter of Scipio Africanus, the general that had beaten Hannibal in the Second Punic War, and mother of the Gracchi, the two brothers who had used the power of populist politics to try and help the poor and we'll discuss more about them next week. But of course, what we want is a nice, balanced, Watson and all portrayal of our female characters. But let's not be silly. It just ain't gonna happen. So to get to it, we have to dig very deep. It's tempting to think about Roman empresses as being like Queen's consort. After all, a Roman emperor was a king of sorts, albeit one that went even further than the divine right ideal of early modern kings, as they were often deified to become literal gods. They usually tried, though by no means always succeeded, to pass the imperial throne to members of their own family, and found their legitimacy through military conquest. But in many ways, a more apt comparison for Roman empresses is a modern first lady, especially when it came to Livia and Augustus. A key part of selling a man as an emperor, as a man that one should venerate, along with victory on the battlefield, of course, was his image as a family man. When politicians around the world look to us for their support, they're not just selling their values, their ideas, their ideologies. They're selling their whole lives. They sell a vision of what they will do at work, but also a domestic image. Wives, for still unfortunately it is mostly still wives, and families are part of this package they can't stay silent. They won't be left alone. Nowhere is this more true, of course, than in the United States and the office of the First Lady. We'll almost certainly go into this in a far more detail in a later series of The Other Half, but for the most part, First Ladies are there to provide a rounded portrait of a President. When they give speeches, especially at national conventions. When they aren't ripping off other first ladies, they don't tend to talk so much about their spouse as a politician. They talk about their husband as a man, all in an effort to make him look more relatable. I'm going to give you an example of this. When Mitt Romney was nominated as the candidate for president in 2012, he had already been a governor. And so both he and his wife knew the importance of this domestic sphere. They are both experts in selling this part of his image. Of their big family and their own personal story. Here is part of Anne Romney's speech at the Republican National Convention and just see how she manages to talk relatively about her husband as a man and how that is used to try and get you to vote for him.
0: We're too smart to know there aren't easy answers but we're not dumb enough to accept that there aren't better answers. is where this boy I met at a high school dance comes in. His name is Mitt Romney, and you should really get to know him. I could tell you while I fell in love with him. He was tall, laughed a lot. He was nervous. Girls like that. It shows a guy's a little intimidated. More than anything, he made me laugh. When Mitt and I met and fell in love, we were determined not to let anything stand in the way of our life together. I was an Episcopalian. He was a Mormon. We were very young, both still in college. There were many reasons to delay marriage. And you know what? We just didn't care. We got married and moved into a basement apartment. (laughs) We walked to class together, shared the housekeeping, ate a lot of pasta and tuna fish. Our desk was a door propped up on sawhorses. Our dining room table was a fold-down ironing board in the kitchen. But those were the best days. Then our first son came along. All at once, I'm 22 years old with a baby and a husband who's going to business school and law school at the same time. And I can tell you, probably like every other girl who finds herself in a new life, far from family and friends, with a new baby and a new husband, that it dawned on me that I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. Well, that was 42 years ago. I've survived. We now have five sons and 18 beautiful grandchildren. I'm still in love with that boy I met at a high school dance, and he still makes me laugh.
1: Bet you didn't expect some extensive Anne Romney in this episode, did you? I remember hearing soundbites of this speech six years ago, and it stuck with me for how incredibly carefully targeted it is. Mitt Romney had a few weaknesses as a candidate that caused him problems during the campaign. One was the fact that he was a Mormon in a country that largely has an at least mixed view of them. So she talks a lot about his family values. He's a very rich guy in a country whose economy was struggling. So she talks about their humble first home. He wasn't the most approachable candidate, not one of those I'd have a beer with him guys. So she talks about, quote, that boy I met at a high school dance. That guy for four decades has, quote, made her laugh. She even manages to get in a little bit about how impressive he was to go into business and law school at the same time. It really is quite something. Now, Roman empresses, of course, weren't in the business of giving big speeches at the forum and talking about how adorable their husbands were when they were young. But this domestic sphere was just as important. Wives who cultivated this virtuous family ideal tended to do well. Those that didn't? Well, we'll see about them during the series. They were supposed to play the hostess and provide an example for the rest of the empire. If the military was in trouble and needed funds, she was expected to sell off clothes, jewellery and possessions to help the war effort, and encourage fellow Roman noblewomen to do so. An open house policy was expected. Callers should be treated with respect, and every courtesy given to them when they awaited an audience with her husband. Parties needed to be organised and hosted. But most of all, to quote Julius Caesar quote, my wife ought not even to be under suspicion. Most of the empresses that we will be covering in this series did not follow the path that I just laid out. They fall short of achieving that perfect domestic image. Now, as I've said, some of that image may come from hostile sources, but equally we can't just dismiss it. It is one thing for emperors to sleep around, but empresses must not. Bloodlines could not be sullied by bastardy, his reputation could not be tainted, his masculinity could not be called into question. It seems that a little more of a blind eye was turned when empresses strayed than, say, with medieval queens, but if they were called on it, then the punishments could be far, far more severe. There aren't that many instances of European queens being put to death in medieval and modern history, especially if you weren't married to Henry VIII, but Roman empresses were a different story. Some were simply discarded, some exiled, they were the lucky ones. Some were murdered, some committed suicide, others had far nastier ends. It was a very dangerous world and it could be utterly merciless. And what makes it worse is that becoming empress was often not something that they chose to do. It was sometimes foisted upon them. Some Roman empresses were like Lady Macbeth. They played a role in getting their husband the throne, but that wasn't the norm. Imperial Rome was completely totalitarian. The word of the emperor was law. To go against it was treason. If you had one of the mad, bad ones, then even the slightest suggestion that you might be questioning that word was enough to see you die in the most horrible of ways. If he wanted to marry you, even if it was only on a whim, that was the end of the discussion. Now, many empresses were treated well. They were often effectively sold into marriage to the emperor or pressured into it against their will, sometimes while even married to someone else, but they often found life as empress wasn't that bad. But that wasn't always the case. It could be a nightmare, a trap that you were thrown into and from which you could not escape. Let's just say that no sane woman would want to marry the emperor Caligula, yet he was wed four times. This lack of control over their own destinies was not confined to their choice of husband. As was the case for women throughout so much of European history, they had very little legal control over their own lives. According to historian Matthew Dennison, Roman wives, even those at the top of the social pyramid, could look forward to only a life of, quote, hazardous childbirth and uneventful domesticity. This domesticity is exemplified wonderfully in an oft-quoted epitaph that was discovered in Rome recently. Tombs in ancient Rome were often placed by the side of the road as kind of billboards advertising the lives of Romans who wanted to be remembered. This is what one woman in around a 100 BCE, quote, Stranger, I have little to say. Stop and read. This is the unbeautiful tomb of a beautiful woman. Her parents called her Claudia by name. She loved her husband with her heart. She bore two children. One of these she leaves on the earth. The other she buried under the earth. Her speech was delightful, her gait graceful, she kept house, she made wool. I have finished. Go. Whether you view this final memorial as the humble pronouncements of an ordinary woman or as sardonic black humour poking fun at the establishment, I'm tempted to say the latter, this does rather neatly set up the world of the typical Roman woman. But I would not be doing this podcast if all we had to talk about a woman's life was what children she had and how graceful her gait was. Women were not granted much in the way of legal protections, but they still had agency. Not every Roman wife, or even woman, fell into a purely domestic life. Some wished for more. They wanted a role in the state. They wanted to promote their interests, their children's prospects, and their family's position. This wasn't really supposed to happen, but it did. Republican Rome had famous, powerful women, as we will discuss next week, but they were very limited in number. With the coming of the empire and the creation of the position of the all-powerful emperor, there was also the creation of empresses. And there are a few more adept people at becoming the power behind a throne than the person who shares a bed with the one that wears the crown. Now, of course, one did not necessarily need to be the wife of an emperor to share his bed. There are a number of powerful imperial mistresses that we could talk about, but we are focused on empresses. So let's look a little bit more about Roman marriage. Upper-class women in the period were typically married off in their early teens, with 12 being the recognised lower limit of acceptability. The reason for this was simple. It was recognised that these early years after puberty were a woman's most fertile and the safest for delivering a child at a time when infant and maternal mortality was very high. It is estimated that a quarter of babies died before the age of one, and that's not counting the numbers of stillbirths and miscarriages. As in much of history, one of the prime imperatives of any wife was to provide her husband with a son and heir. Succeed, and your position was secured. Fail, well, there was never a question that it was the man's fault. Sterility was a female game, and there was grounds for divorce. Childbirth itself was anything but a private business. Expectant mothers, especially new ones, were bombarded with well-meaning advice at every stage of pregnancy and early parenthood, from family and well-wishers. Births always took place at the home, because of course there was no such concept as a hospital. There were, though, such people as midwives, whom rich families kept on retainer. The safe delivery of their children was not just a matter of love, it was about the survival and flourishing of a family's fortune. It was big business, and it was important that it should be done safely. It usually took place in what is called a birthing chair, upon which the naked mother was sat, with friends and family behind her, and a midwife below. Men were rarely permitted inside. The chair had a crescent-shaped hole in the bottom, through which the baby would be delivered by the midwife. Babies would then be typically handed over to wet nurses who would feed the new child. Rome, though, had a bit of a problem. Within the aristocracy, birth rates were very low. There are a few reasons for this. The dangers of childbirth, husbands off on long military assignments, the simple choice not to be saddled with babies, all sorts. This meant that children and even young adults were often adopted by the great families, even if their parents were still alive and well. This, of course, circumvented Roman wives, preventing them that great key to power, their children. The most famous of these adopted young men was Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus, who was adopted as the son and heir of Julius Caesar in his will, despite the fact that his mother, Attia, was still alive. Indeed, Caesar was actually Octavian's great-uncle, but that did not stop him from inheriting his fortune and later his position at the top of the Roman political ladder. This made it all the more crucial for Roman wives to produce children. Giving a Roman emperor a son was usually a surefire way to his heart, but that was actually not that common in our period. In fact, no Julio-Claudian emperor, the dynasty that we will be discussing in this series, was the natural son of both an emperor and an empress. Tiberius was the son of a previous marriage of the empress Livia Drusilla. Caligula was Tiberius' nephew, Claudius was Caligula's uncle, and Nero was the son of Claudius' fourth wife with another man. So we have only two emperors there who were the sons of empresses, albeit from previous marriages, and none of emperors. This gave their mothers legitimate rose to influence and power, as it was expected they might protect their son and promote his interests. But what other acceptable forms of female power were there in ancient Rome at the dawn of the empire? We'll discuss this more both in the next episode and no doubt in future episodes, but I will touch on it briefly here. Power was seen as masculine, so if a woman sought it, Romans tended to decry it as being unnatural. When women did take centre stage, then, they often did so from the domestic sphere. There is the example from Roman mythology of a woman called Lucretia, who was raped by the son of the last Roman king. She then committed suicide rather than let her robbed virtue damage the reputation of her family. This act helped galvanise the people of Rome to rise up, overthrow the monarchy and establish the Republic. Or so the story goes. Not exactly something that modern feminists would go about cheering, but it is centre stage in this crucial moment in Roman history. A woman helped overthrow tyranny and form the Republic. That is quite something for such a patriarchal society. For those of you who know your Shakespeare, you may know the story of Coriolanus. For those of you unfamiliar, he was a Roman general during the early Republican period who was betrayed by his city and so led a coalition army of enemies against Rome. Every man sent to attempt to reason with him failed, so, at the urging of the mothers of Rome, fearful that their sons would die in the coming certain defeat, Coriolanus' mother and wife, Vituria and Volumnia, went to persuade him to call off the attack. They succeeded, saving Rome, but it resulted in the death of their son and husband. These two examples emphasise two of the key values that Roman women were supposed to possess and embody. Family and chastity. It was rare for Roman women to be valued for seeking power away from these two core values. I would, though, add one other thing. Loyalty. Loyalty, yes, to their family, but also loyalty to the Republic and later to the Empire. When they did things that brought them centre stage, it had to be for the good of the state. When they strayed from this, when they were seen to be doing things for their own interest, for their own riches and power, then they were decried and condemned. The Roman empresses that we will be covering in this series, those for whom we have any real information anyway, have pretty much all been vilified in history. But was this justified? What did they do that was so heinous to the ancient writers? Who were they? But, before we answer these questions, we need to find out why there was an empire to rule. Lucretia, Vittoria and Volumnia had helped form and save the Republic. But at the start of our story, it was about to fall. Why? What was the world in which all these women lived? We will discover that all next week.